One of the interesting pieces of trivia about the Bible is that as far as we know, there is only one writer in the Bible who is a non-Jewish writer. Anybody remember who that is? Luke, yes, very good. Luke, Luke is the only non-Jewish writer that we know of in scripture. And, and Luke's kind of interesting because uh, he writes the gospel of Luke that tells us about Jesus' story, but then he also writes the book of Acts which tells the story of the early church. And both of those letters, they're meant to be read back to back, two volumes. Both of those are written to a Christian Greek friend of his by the name of Theophilus. And when Luke decided to write uh, this gospel of Luke, this story of Jesus, uh, from what we can tell, Theophilus and he must have been having some kind of a conversation and maybe Theophilus asked him at some point, you know, it'd be nice to get all of these stories about Jesus gathered into one place. And so Luke, who, who was a scholar, in fact, many uh, uh, theologians today believe that, that Luke was a doctor, um, he investigated, uh, he took a look, he decided to see what is it um, uh, that I can pull together for my friend Theophilus so that he can know the story. And we read then in Luke 1, Verses one through four, he begins his gospel with an introduction and he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He's, he's saying there are a lot of people who have talked to these eyewitnesses. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke says, I, I investigated, I, I interviewed, I tried to get at the different stories. And it's kind of interesting because only in the Gospel of Luke do we have that story of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem uh, uh, being born uh, in a stable, placed in a manger, that sort of thing. And, and I wonder uh, what kind of investigation then Luke might have done. Did he talk to Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, about it? Uh, did he interview the, the different disciples and ask them about it? Of course, we know that Luke spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul, but Paul was one of the, those that kind of came to the party late in terms of being an eyewitness in, in that regard. And yet, Paul had conversations with the same Jesus and so might have had something to share. But even further than that, I wonder sometimes because Luke shares this story of the manger and the stable and Bethlehem and the shepherds, did he interview some of the shepherds? I don't think it's much of a stretch to think that after they'd had this experience, I mean, can you imagine? You don't quickly forget standing out in the fields and suddenly having an angel host, oh, you know, doing their thing, and you're hitting the ground, uh, that doesn't, that's not something you forget. And I know even though it was about 30 years from that point until Jesus began his ministry, I don't think they quickly forgot or soon forgot what they had seen. In fact, it seems reasonable to me that these very men, or at least some of them, might have become followers of Jesus and from there become part of the early church such that Luke might have gone to them and actually talked to them and interviewed them. Tell me about what happened so long ago. And so this morning, I want us to look again at that story as it leads us in uh, to the idea we're gonna work through today. And let's take a look at Luke 2, eight through 18. 
There we read, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were absolutely terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, which is what all angels say to people that when they come to them because they're scared. Uh, you know, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Evidently, that was not a usual thing to place a baby in a manger, just like it wouldn't be today. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Every time I read that, I, I am reminded of, uh, I don't know if it was one of my boys or, or some that went to Bushnell and one of the university and one of the, the professors there uh, was Terry O'Casey and Dr. Casey in his class uh, one day when they were looking at this, this piece, he said, you know, we, we often think of, and I, I know I do, we often think of those angels as like an angel choir, and they're all singing, glory to God, glory, you know, and we think that's what was going on there. But he said, it says they were saying that it, maybe it was more of a chant. And so he had his whole class say, okay, we're gonna say it together, glory to God in the highest, glory to God in the highest. And he got them all going and they started to say it in one voice and it just filled the room and it was this powerful. I was thinking about having us do that today, but you all look so comfortable. I won't, I won't, uh, I won't do that. Uh, but still to try and capture in your mind what the angels said and what they did and the shepherds and how they felt and what they experienced there. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Well, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. This morning I want to focus on what that army of angels cried out. We're going through this series in, in Advent of the promises of Christmas, God's promises to us. And last week we talked about the promise of hope. Today as we look at, at this message of these this angels as they shared it, uh, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace, peace. Of all the things they could have said or yelled out or, or, or whatever, I mean, the first angel that comes tells the shepherds, here's how you can find him. Here's how you recognize who he is. And by the way, he's the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. And so he gives instructions. But the angel army tells them what's going on. Because here's this one who's going to bring peace. Out of all the things you'd think that he would bring, out of all the things that they expected maybe out of a Messiah, and we've talked about that numerous times before, to be a leader, you know, to kick out the Romans, to do all these other things, to be a king, to do all that. They say he comes to bring peace. So we're gonna talk about this whole idea of peace this morning. Now, most of us, when we think of the idea of peace, there's a couple things that come into our minds. The first thing usually is, well, peace is the absence of conflict. 
You know, peace is the absence of war. Peace is what we've been praying for in Ukraine and in Israel and Palestine and other places around the world. And we think of peace in that regard. And those are important things. I think those are things that God wants. Or, or maybe when we think of peace, we think of, of an inner peace. You know, that, that sometime even, sometimes even when there's chaos flying around me and everything, that I can go to bed at night and sleep like a baby because I, I have inner peace. And while both of those things, again, I think are things that God would wish for us and want us to experience and that sort of thing, they kind of fall short. They're more like byproducts of the kind of peace that the Bible's talking about. They fall short of what maybe God wants us to understand when it comes to peace. So as we explore this idea of this promised peace, because the truth is, many times, a lot of us don't feel all that peaceful, do we? You know, a lot of times, you know, we feel like, ah, man, Lord, just all I need. And, and I think of so many times in my life and in my prayers, I've prayed for people uh, when they're going through stuff. And one of the things I always pray is, Lord, bring them peace, grant them peace. And those are all legitimate and good prayers. But I want us to think a little deeper today about this promise of peace, at least looking at it uh, from scripture and looking at some biblical ideas of four kinds of biblical peace that maybe can, can fill out a little more our view of this peace and the promise that we have. So the first is this, a kind of peace that the Bible talks about is reconciling peace, okay? A reconciling peace. The peace that Jesus brings is a peace that restores what was broken in the Garden of Eden. Just as we, we went back before and talked about how hope was established, the promise of hope was established in the Garden, so we see there as well something that was lost. We can go back there. That, that there somehow in the midst of what happened there, the, the, there was a gap that formed between us and God through uh, the brokenness, through the choices that Adam and Eve made, through the temptation of that snake. Somehow, somehow peace was broken. We see the harmony in the, in the garden to start with as Adam and Eve walked with God, but then we see this brokenness. Because one of the aspects of this peace and an understanding is when, when the Old Testament, especially when we talks about peace, it uses a particular word, and that's the word shalom. What does shalom mean? Shalom means completeness, soundness, wholeness, welfare, things being in harmony. And so Adam and Eve walked in that kind of peace with God until like this big plate gas, glass window that a rock goes through, it was shattered and broken. And from that point on, what Adam and Eve experienced was not that kind of peace, but rather it was, was heartache and sadness and sorrow. And that's been our experience as well through that time, from that time till now. And so as we think about that, the Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. So we have peace with God. The most important thing, the most important peace that we can know is peace with God. The worst thing that happened in that moment in the garden was that the relationship between God and people was broken. 
They were separated from him. They died. You know, if you read the story, you know, uh, Adam and Eve were told by God, on the day you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And then they ate of it, and what happened? Did they, and they're on the ground? No. No, they didn't just immediately die, we think. But in, in point of fact, in the most important way, they did. Their relationship was broken, and God comes in the cool of the evening to, to, to have his walk with them. You know, the shalom that should have been there as they, as they walked in harmony together, and instead, what were they doing? Hiding, hiding, because the relationship was broken. On that day, they, they truly died because they were separated from God in that way. But now, Paul tells us that through Jesus, we can have peace with God. We can be brought together again with him. And we run around so often looking for all kinds of other peace, and we neglect this fundamental idea of peace with God. In my, in my private reading in the mornings, I've been reading uh, in the Old Testament, and I've been reading in Jeremiah. Seems like I've been in Jeremiah forever, guys. But <laughs> I'm in chapter 23 this last week, uh, reading in Jeremiah. And uh, in that chapter, the king of Judah in Jerusalem there is a guy named Zedekiah. Zedekiah is a descendant of David. Uh, it was through David that all these, these promises had been made. And, and he was hoping to be, well, hoping he believed he was the one to be the king by right, by birth, by God appointing him. The problem is that Zedekiah had brought foreign idols in, even into the very temple. He had allowed these foreign gods to be worshiped, and he had just worshiped God kind of on the side as one among many. Not only that, uh, he had mistreated people. He had allowed injustice to take place. The courts uh, within Judah uh, were a mess. The poor were neglected. Uh, the rich were getting everything they wanted. And so these bad things were happening. Jeremiah is preaching to Zedekiah, and he's telling him, the Lord is bringing disaster. He's withdrawn his hand of protection from you, and he's bringing disaster. An army is coming, and it's going to annihilate Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah doesn't believe him. In fact, Zedekiah has some other prophets who are saying, don't listen to Jeremiah. You know, we speak for the Lord. Everything's gonna be peace and safety. Peace and safety. Until scouts come back and say, an army has just come in and, and they're taking all the cities of Judah and they're marching on Jerusalem. And suddenly Zedekiah realizes that he can't, he can't do anything about it. It's the Babylonians, it's an empire. They're coming and they're gonna wipe them out. So he calls in Jeremiah and he says, speak to the Lord on our behalf. We don't want this war, we want peace. And Jeremiah takes him to task. And he says, you don't, you don't understand. You want peace so that you don't have to face a, a battle you can't win. But what you need is peace with God. You need to bow before him. And maybe yet, maybe even now, maybe God will have mercy on you and avert this disaster. But Zedekiah wouldn't listen. He didn't take him to heart. And so the, the disaster that Jeremiah had predicted comes true and the Babylonians come in and they wipe out Jerusalem and they take Zedekiah away in chains and he dies in a foreign land. And all that takes place 
Why? Because Jeremiah was trying to say, the most important piece that you need is to be reconciled to God. Interesting word, reconciled. You know, that we be brought back together. What that wants, that something that once was whole and now is broken can be made whole again. And so that's the kind of peace. And I, and I read that in my, my reading this week and, and I thought about that and I always try to ask the question, okay, Lord, after I read this, what do you want me to learn? You know, what is it that I need to know there? And I started thinking about my own life again. And, and then I started thinking, well, I'm preaching this week on peace and I projected to all of you. So you get sucked into my vortex of, of guilt. But anyway, uh, you know, not, there's always, it's always, you know, I used to tell my boys, it's nothing like a little healthy guilt. But uh, I, I, uh, I started thinking, do I have idols that I've allowed into my life? Are there things that are more important to me than God? Now, I can intellectually talk all I want about, you know, God being important, but, but can it be seen in the way that I live? You know, of how I spend my money, of how I spend my time. How do I treat other people? Am I like Zedekiah who just lets justice go out the window? Do I reach beyond myself to those in need and try to help lift up those who, who, who are being mistreated or pour grace upon those who need it so desperately? Because all of those things are indicators of where I am in my relationship with God. All those are indicators of my being at peace and being one with him. And so I need to come back and get on my knees before him and, and say, Lord, may you be ever number one in my life. You know, there's that, that uh, uh, little video thing that's going around, I am second, you know, and I've seen so many different athletes and celebrities and people who, who are Christians who have done that. And, and boy, it's powerful because it's the truth. It's not about me, it's about him. And I place him in that, in that highest place and I have peace with God, I am reconciled. Well, the second thing, uh, the kind of biblical peace that God wants us to understand is surpassing peace. Um, here again, the Apostle Paul is, is writing to the churches, and he writes to the church in Philippi. And this is what he says in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that transcends or surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We live in a world with all kinds of stresses and anxieties. Uh, we live in a world where, uh, you know, peace seems so hard for us to find sometimes. So many things uh, drop on top of us. We run around doing so much that it's easy to become stressed out. There have been times in my life where I felt like, man, I just can't take on one more thing. Uh, the picture I have, and I don't know, you know, some of you might be young enough, you've never seen this, but when we were younger, they used to have on TV, they would have these things where that you would see these different, kind of like, think of, uh, of America's Got Talent, kind of that kind of stuff, you know, where they'd see jugglers and they'd see different things, some of the different shows. And there's this one that always stuck out in my head and, and it's a dude who has this, these poles and he puts a plate on the pole and he spins it. 
And then he can shake the pole and it just keeps spinning faster. And then he does another one and another one and another one. And he's down here and he's putting another one on. That one down there is starting to wobble. And he runs back down here and he and he's getting it going again. And then he, he keeps them going. And then he adds another plate and another plate. And then he has to run back. And then this one's going. And he's just running back and forth between these plates until one falls. And, and I think to myself, that's me sometimes. Now, I can get to the point in my life where I've just got so much stuff going. I'm just running back and forth. And I think... Somehow that the solution to that is I'm just going to knock down half the plates. And I do, you know. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do that. I'm going I'm I'm to place margins in my life, which is a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But then you know what I do? Well, now I've got two plates going. I can handle three. I can do four. I can do five. And I get right back where I was started because I don't understand the peace that God wants me to understand. It's a peace of the mind. It's a peace of the emotions. It's a, it's a, a peace that surpasses understanding and to know and to be in touch with what God wants me to be doing. The important things and not necessarily just always the urgent things. You know, and it's not just me adding stuff, you know, because in the middle of that, sometimes I'm doing all this stuff and then all of a sudden, boom, something big lands on me that I, that I can't do anything about that I have to deal with, you know, whether, you know, for some of you, whether it's health or loss of a loved one or, or something else. And so we run up against these things and we're asking God, where are you? Why can't I find peace? And then we read this passage by Paul and he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And we know that he made a mistake, Right? Because what he really meant to say was rejoice in the Lord when things are going well. That's what he meant to say. No. No. I know what he means. I know what he said. He said rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, for the Lord is near. And it's not just that, it, it, you know, the Lord is near. And I think, oh, good. Come, Lord Jesus. You're near. Come now so I can leave all this behind. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the Lord is near in terms of he's beside me. He's with me in the middle of these things. As someone once said, God is only just a prayer away. That seems kind of trite, but it's true. It's true, and he walks with me on the mountaintops and through the valley of the shadow of death. He is there beside me so that I can, I can have this peace that transcends my understanding of what most people think peace is. A peace that, that guards my heart, my emotions, keeps me from flying off the handle and losing it. <laughs> it guards my mind and keeps me from thinking in ways that are counterproductive to what God desires in my life. And that I can know then his peace a peace that even is something that I, I have regardless of the externals in my life. Which brings us then to a third definition of peace. I call it a choosing peace. Now this third description of biblical peace is about relationships and conflict. And what I mean by choosing peace is that we have a choice to make. In any conflict with others, we can choose peace or we can choose something less than what God wants for us. 
And so the Apostle Paul speaks of this, and this is really a, a piece that speaks to relationship. You know, we've talked about our relationship with God, now we talk about our relationship with each other. And so Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take vengeance, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep uh, you will heap burning coals on his head. I'm not gonna, that's a sermon for another day. We can talk about what that means. You can imagine. Uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, Paul recognizes that when it comes to our relationship with others, peace is a two-way street. But how many times have we heard people say, well, I don't wanna fight, but if they're going to come after me, they're, I'm gonna give as good as I get, you know? Because after all, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the Bible way. Well, that might have been the Old Testament way, but Jesus brought a new way, did he not? A new covenant, he said, a new agreement with God. And so what does Paul say here? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He's saying you might not be able to control them, but guess who you can control? Yourself. How many times have parents said that to their kids? Well, you can't control what they're doing, but you can control yourself, you know. We hope they can. We want them to, okay? And then he says, leave room for God's vengeance. God will take care of it. You know, he's not saying they're gonna get, people are gonna get off scot-free, but he's saying, let God deal with that. And he doesn't leave it just there. Then he says, in fact, furthermore, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. He's not saying, you know, invite your friends over to dinner. If your enemy, if the person who doesn't like you is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't repay evil with evil, he says. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good, he's saying. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who, who gets credited with saying, the best way to defeat your enemy is to make your enemy your friend. And that's an echo, I think, of what Paul is saying, what God would have us understand in terms of this, this choosing of peace uh, in the midst of conflict. So even if you don't feel like it, even if someone hurts you really badly, it's not an eye for an eye. Instead, it's God saying to you, choose peace. Choose peace. Finally, the, the, the fourth thing here, uh, the fourth kind of biblical peace is patient peace. And this is a peace that looks to the future. Jesus' death and resurrection guarantee a future of perfect peace for his people. But the fullness of that reality isn't here yet. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah, the king who, could, who would usher in ultimate shalom. Ultimate peace. And when we read this, you know, whenever I talk about Isaiah, we start thinking about Isaiah 9, or we start thinking Isaiah 53. We think of these ones that describe, you know, uh, Jesus, you know, as the, the wonderful counselor who is coming for to us, a child is born. Or we think of, of uh, you know, the suffering servant and that sort of thing. But this is a little different look that he has here in Isaiah 11. He says, a shoot will come up 
from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. In other words, uh, Jesse was the father of, of King David, okay? And so he's saying, even though David's line, you think Zedekiah, think those guys got chopped down at some point, God is gonna remain true to his promise. When we're faithless, God remains faithful. And so we're told that, that this, this, this stump that looks absolutely dead, there's gonna be a branch that grows up from it. It's gonna bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. You know, spoiler alert, he's talking about Jesus. That's the one who's, who's come up. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. That's a way of saying he's gonna proclaim judgments, okay? With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Sounds pretty harsh at this point, right? But he goes on. The wolf will, lie with the, will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. You know, Jesus we're coming into Advent, and I talked about this last week. We're coming into Advent, and we look forward to the first time that Jesus came. And the first time he came, he came as a baby. He grew up with us, and he experienced all the heartache and all the things that we experience. And he went to the cross as the suffering servant who would die for us. And he had victory in the resurrection and now we are this side of the cross and we await his second coming. We await second advent. We are a people in the midst of advent just like the, the Hebrews were before Jesus came the first time. And we look forward to his coming. But his coming is going to be interesting because he's not gonna be returning as the suffering servant, but he's gonna be returning as the, the judgment king, the king of justice, the king who's gonna make all things right. And what he is going to usher in is eternity, a new heaven and a new earth, a place where there is shalom in its completeness, that we are brought back to peace with God, but we're also brought back to peace with each other, and more, we're brought back to peace with creation. And so this description that Isaiah gives us in this passage, what a wonderful thing it is that we look forward to. And so we wait patiently for the fullness of that peace for when Jesus comes again. And in the waiting, we will experience, yes, hardship and suffering, pain and sorrow, even death and separation. And none of those things seem that peaceful, but remember, this is all just temporary. It's so hard to think that. I, I, you know, Wallace passed away and we did the service yesterday and I was thinking to myself, 100 years, you know, I was a month shy of 100 years. 
And I think you, you live 100 years, and I'm sure at some point, maybe Wallace was thinking, Lord, I've been around a long time. <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and you think to yourself, the world doesn't seem to be going in the right direction sometimes as I look at it. And yet now he knows the truth of this kind of peace. In a hundred years, I'm sure he would say, seems like a blink. Twyla and I were just saying the other day, you know, the older we get, and we're not getting any younger, the older we get, the faster time seems to go for us. Just things like it rolls. I remember asking my grandmother one time, I was asking, hey, grandma, what year did such and such a thing happen? She goes, what decade is it? You know, and, and she was saying, it just seems like they roll so fast. Uh, and yet sometimes when we're in the middle of things and there's no peace, it just, we seem stuck and we forget. This is temporary. Look at what Jesus went through. Look at what his followers went through. We, we follow him, okay? And God is going to bring this peace and we patiently wait for the fullness of that peace to arrive. So peace isn't just about our comfort it's not just about how I feel. In fact, feelings and comfort are just hopeful byproducts of seeking God's peace in the here and now. The peace that Jesus gives is a reconciling peace that reunites us with God. It is a surpassing peace that guards our hearts and our minds, even in the midst of conflict and, and anxiety and stress. It is a peace that we choose even when we don't feel like it. And it is the patient peace that rests in the truth that this present world is just temporary. There's better things coming. We must remember that without Jesus, there can be no true peace. We must remember further that we are agents of God's peace, that we should go out from this place sharing God's peace, speaking a message of peace, telling people how they can know the peace of God. And we need to hear anew the voices of the angel army saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to mankind on whom his favor rests. Let's bow together. Father, we are so thankful for your sending of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And Lord, we, we praise you. We thank you for him. Uh, Father, help us to today and in this season look anew at what it means to rest in your peace, your shalom, to be even now at harmony uh, with you, Lord, with those around us, with the creation. Uh, Father, that your peace would be seen in us. Lord, that is our desire. That is what we ask for today. And we trust that through your spirit, you will continually grow us in the midst of your peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.